more famous works. You would probably have to be a big fan of his to actually have read it. But the story centers around a main character who was a painter named Niggle. Now, Niggle, in the English Oxford Dictionary, Niggle is a word that means to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. And so Niggle was the main character, but probably uh, just a thinly veiled reference uh, to Tolkien himself, who had a reputation for being a niggler, if you were. And so we're told in this story that Niggle has to make a very long journey. Now, in Tolkien and in old school language, a lot of times when you talk about a long journey to make, they're talking about passing into the next life or death. And so this is a traditional way of saying that death eventually was on the way for him, as it is for all of us. So he knows he's going to die. So he decides to finish at least one great picture and sets his mind to painting a beautiful tree. So he doesn't get very far. That's the thing about Niggle. He's the kind of artist that's better at painting leaves than he is at painting entire trees. So he also has this other part of his personality where he's very kind-hearted and compassionate. So if anyone asks him for help, he'll put down his work and he'll do whatever he can to help them. So one night, When he's sensing that his time is getting near, he gets a a call from a friend. His friend calls him and asks him to go out in the wet and in the cold to fetch a doctor for his ailing wife. And so Niggle, being Niggle, does. Puts down his work, goes out in the cold, he goes out in the rain, he gets a doctor for his friend's wife. And on the way, unfortunately, he catches cold. And all of a sudden, he realizes that this long journey is about to begin. And he weeps. He cries because he thinks of his work of art and he says, it's not finished, but he has to leave. So after he's gone, because he does pass away, he starts on this journey to the next life. uh, The next owner of his home finds his painting. And the entirety of his painting is one beautiful leaf. Now the new owner says, wow, this is a really awesome leaf. So he frames it and he actually has it hung in the local museum where people, a, fa- a few people, see it from time to time and marvel at it. But this isn't the end of the story. So after death, Niggle is put on a train ride towards the mountains of his afterlife. And on this ride, he's met by two voices. And the first voice is Justice. And Justice talks to Niggle. And Justice says, you've wasted so much time and accomplished so little. But the other voice that meets him on the train ride is mercy. And mercy says to him, you've chosen to sacrifice for others. And as Niggle gets close to the outskirts of his new home, something catches his eye. And this is how Tolkien puts it. He says, before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed. And yet, had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms, opened them wide, and said, it's a gift. Now commentators, when they read this, they explain that the world before death, or Niggle's old country, had forgotten Niggle almost completely. And there his work had ended very much unfinished and helpful to only a very few people. But in this new country a permanently real world, he finds that his tree 
in full detail is finished. It was not just this fancy or this idea that he had in his own mind. Indeed, it was part of this true reality that would live and be enjoyed forever. Now, as people have read this story over the years, it's hit home for so many people precisely because I think it hits on the hopes and the fears that we have for our life and our life's work. Specifically, like Niggle, we want to work. We want to make a difference. Yet, we hate work. We feel trapped or overwhelmed or afraid that we are wasting our lives or we'll never be able to accomplish enough like Niggle. Yet, we hope, we hope that something we do will last, will connect to something bigger, to something eternal. And this, I think, is where the faith described in the Bible can make such a big difference. If the God of the Bible exists, for example, then there's this true reality behind this one that we experience every day that we can tap into through our work. And that's what Nigel finds out. Wow, I was actually tapped into something real and lasting. But how and why and why is it so hard to do so Those are the questions we're going to explore in the next three weeks. Today is Labor Day. Oh, no, it's not, actually. It's the day before Labor Day. (laughs) Tomorrow is Labor Day. This is Labor Day weekend. And Labor Day is is a, a day set aside by our government for people who work to celebrate the work that they do by taking a day off to rest. So I thought this might be a great time to look at the nature of work. And so what we're going to look at in this series is, one, why do we want to work? Why is there a part of us that wants to connect to something meaningful and lasting, wants to accomplish things? Second, why is it so hard? Why is work so hard sometimes? And third, how can faith, particularly faith in Jesus, transform work from being something to be disdained or endured or idolized back into its original purpose as something to bring dignity, purpose, and life to humanity? All right, so it's a bigger topic than I think that we can hit in one week. But this week, we're going to start by looking at why there's a part of us that wants to have a job to do. And when I say job, I mean a purpose, something to accomplish. It doesn't have to be something you're paid for to be work. There are lots of things we do in our lives that we hope we do well, that we hope last. There are jobs that hopefully have meaning. Why do we all want something like that? Why do we want to connect to that? So that's where we're going to start today. And special thanks to a book I read that was written by Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf called Every Good Endeavor. It's a really good book, and it helped me with this quite a bit. So let's read our passage today. This is our key text. You may have heard it before. This is from the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're starting in verse 26. And you can follow along in your bulletin or behind me on the screen. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. 
They'll be yours for food. And to the, all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures who move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So, why, like Niggle, do we want to make a difference in the world? Why do we want a job to do? Why is there a part of us that wants to work? Well, first, I think there's a value that we can notice here. The value is that work has inherent worth because God works and enjoys it. There's something valuable about work because God values it. It has worth to him. He loves work. Verse 31 says, God saw all that he made. It was good. And there was evening. There was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were complete in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. So the Bible here in the first chapter begins talking about work before it talks about anything else. What you see in the first chapter is God with a job to do. And it talks about work in a way, and we may not realize this, that's actually pretty profound and different than it had been talked about before. In verse 2, it says twice that God works. And in verse 31 of the previous chapter, it says that God sees the fruit of his work, and he calls it very good. So you see God working and enjoying it. Now, that may not sound like a big deal. God likes to work, okay? But in the course of human history, this is actually a bold and contrary statement. This is not the way work popularly had been viewed. So when Genesis was written and being composed, it was in the context of several other accounts of the creation of the world. Genesis wasn't the only one out there. And in other accounts popular during the time, like the Enuma Elish, for example, the world actually is created by accident. One God destroys another, and the world gets created sort of by accident as a result of that battle. In other stories, humanity is created because the gods did not want to do any work. The gods thought the work, that work was terrible, so they created human beings to do the work. In ancient Greek mythology, in the beginning, the gods and humanity, they're, 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 they're like friends. They're chilling in their version of paradise. And there's absolutely no work, and that's part of what makes it paradise. No one has any work to do. And food just sort of is provided in abundance. Now, let, let me just stop here. He's like, oh, Brad, that's kind of interesting. But let me ask you, is this your view of paradise? Think about it. The absence of work. No. Oh, good. Because I'll tell you, for me, I think the answer might be yes. And part of it's my personality. I've done these things where they study your personality, 
One of them that I like, we don't have time to get into it, but this thing called the Enneagram. And I'm a nine. I don't know why I did quotes there, because I actually am a nine. I'm a nine in the Enneagram. I'm not a nine. I am a nine, I promise. And one of the things that nines like is to think that everything is good, that there's no problems and nothing to do. And so I live a lot of my life just hoping to get to the point where I can just relax. Okay, everything's good. Everything's taken care of. There's no work to do, right? Now, I'm a nine. That's my personality. But I think a lot of us, when we think about what paradise is, it's the absence of work. We don't have to do anything. We can sit on the beach all day, drinking out of coconuts and soaking in the race, right? And what I'm suggesting is that maybe, just maybe, We've possibly been a little brainwashed on some level to think that work is a curse, a burden, or at least a necessary evil at its best. Is that how you view work? Be honest. Think about it. Something we have to put up with so that we can have moments of leisure when we truly experience the good life. And as a result... We often think that certain types of work, usually ones that take manual labor, are somehow more demeaning or that that work is less valuable than work that's of a more intellectual nature. And this is a pervasive or common way of thinking that we rarely challenge. We just assume. We don't realize that it's actually a perspective on work that may not be true. We think that that's just the way it is, when it's really actually an extension of some really old idea, ideas that come from the Greek creation myths, that eventually became the basis for Greek thought and philosophy, that eventually pervaded all of Western culture and many of our contemporary ways of thinking. And it's a destructive way to view the world. Aristotle, ever heard of this guy, famous Greek philosopher? He famously wrote that some people are born to be slaves. People forget that. And what he meant is that some people are not as capable of higher rational thought. Therefore, they should do the work that frees the more talented people to pursue a life of honor and culture. He must be a therapist. <laughs> he might, might have needed a therapist. Well, now today, the idea of slavery is not something that any of us are comfortable with at all. But do we consider work a necessary evil? Do we consider some jobs more fit for lower people? It's funny how a simple idea, namely that work is bad, when left unchallenged, can turn us into elitists that would justify even the existence of something terrible like slavery. But the picture we see in the Bible of work is completely different. It isn't a necessary evil. God himself works and is having a ball doing it. And no work is less valuable or has less honor than any other kind of work. If you think about it, in this passage we just read, God is basically a gardener, someone who gets down in the earth. When he creates humanity, the imagery that is used is of God taking the dirt, forming it together and breathing life into it, like God was getting his hands dirty, down in the mud and the dirt, and enjoying it. Then we, when we see God's son, Jesus, he's a carpenter, works with his hands, would have had calluses. I really could have used him around our house. 
because I, I need some help. That's another story. <laughs> and when he creates humanity, God does not curse them with work. He blesses us with work. If we pay attention to the story, we can see this. So there's a value for work, but there's also a need for work. And because we're made in God's image, we need to work to feel fulfilled. We need it. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and of every living creature. In verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In the garden of Eden, in paradise, before anything had gone wrong, or there were any problems, God gave humanity a job to do. In the place where God provides for all of the needs of humanity perfectly, in a place that's completely uncorrupted by sin, God gives humanity work to do. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Paradise in the Bible is not the absence of work. Paradise actually cannot exist without it. Work is not a necessary evil. That's a crazy idea from a mostly really smart guy from a long time ago. Work is not a necessary evil. It's a basic human need. Even in a place where there's absolutely no need to pay the bills, work is a basic human need. We often think that work is something that steals our freedom when actually we can't be happy without it. It's in our DNA. We're created in God's image, and God is someone who works. So if we ignore part of who we are, we miss part of who we are. We can't be completely fulfilled. We can't be happy the way we're designed to be happy because we're made in the image of someone who works and loves it. We often think of work stealing our freedom. We often think of freedom as the complete absence of any constraints, but that simply doesn't match reality. We have a design. It's just as fish are made to be in water. And if you take a fish out of water, they're going to die. They can't get very far. Have you ever seen a fish out of water flipping and flopping? And they're designed to breathe in oxygen out of water, not out of thin air. There's a design to who we are. And if we ignore it, we harm ourselves. And so God gives humanity a job to do. Be fruitful and increase the number. Fill the earth and subdue it. He gives humanity a commission, a mission, an office, a job to do. He creates us in his image and commands us to be like him, to work. You see, in creation... Creation is good. And creation is good on its own, but it also has so much potential yet to be developed. Now, the garden needs working. The whole earth is to be filled and subdued. Now, subdued here is not a command to dominate, to abuse, or to use, but it's to continue the process of care, creativity, and development begun by God. This is one way we reflect who he is. And notice that none of the other creatures created are given a job by God. Only humanity. 
And while classic Greek thinkers saw ordinary work, especially manual labor, as relegating human beings to the animal level, the picture we see in the Bible is that work is the thing that distinguishes humanity from the animal kingdom and gives them a special place of dignity created in God's image. The role of humanity is to represent God to all of creation. I love the way uh, Christopher Wright puts this. He points out that in ancient days, times like when Genesis was composed, that kings and emperors would, quote, set up an image of themselves in far-flung corners of their domains to signify their sovereignty over that territory and its people. Similarly, God installs the human species as the image within creation of the authority that finally belongs to God, the creator and owner of the earth. We're meant to represent who he is. So as we work, as we have a job to do in any sphere, in the home, in our neighborhoods, at the office, we reflect who God is and we tap into something that is deep in our DNA that must be for us to be fully human and fully satisfied in life. And this indicates something else about the nature of work. And that is this, that God does his work through us. And therefore, and this is important, all work has meaning. All work has meaning. So work has value. We need to work. But our work also accomplishes something, has meaning. And I think what we sometimes do not realize is that one of the ways that God provides for creation is through the work of humanity. So, why would God give humanity the job of working and caring for the Garden of Eden? Right, well, but couldn't he just as easily have provided for all of man's needs, just much like the picture we get in the ancient Greek mythology, where it's just always food? Well, instead, he provides for humanity through our work. Martin Luther, you ever heard of this guy? He's a big historical figure. <laughs> Led to the Reformation. was this huge movement. Um, anyway, you can look it up on Google. But Martin Luther uses parenting, uh, which is definitely work, as an example of this. So he says that parents and how they use chores are a good example of how God works in our lives. So parents, if you have any kids or if you ever babysat, or even if you've trained someone for a new position at work that you know how to do really well, but they're just learning. Parents can do all of the work around the house or anywhere else much quicker and much better on their own. Yes? <laughs> yes. Someone's like, amen. Someone's like, Brad is finally preaching. So parents can do the work themselves and do it better, but they provide for their children by assigning work to them. Practical needs are met while the character of their children has a chance to grow and flourish as well. So Luther said this, What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, but just such a child's performance, by which God wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else. These are the masks of God, behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. God working through humanity to care for humanity and all of creation through work. And so work becomes the mask through which God cares for us 
and provides for the society around us as well. In this way, everything we do, all work, all work becomes sacred. It's the way that God cares for the world. It's the way that things work. I like the way Tim Keller talks about this. He says, not only are the most modest jobs, like plowing a field or digging a ditch, the masks through which God cares for us, but so are the most basic social roles and tasks, such as voting, participating in public institutions, and being a father or a mother. These are all God's callings, all ways of doing God's work in the world and all ways through which God distributes gifts to us. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, so I have a lot of experience with pastors. And I think church people kind of get this wrong a lot. At least in the tradition I grew up, there, there were callings in the church. They were all callings to ministry. So if you had a calling, that meant you were going to pursue some sort of full-time ministry or be a pastor or something like that. And so being a, a religious worker had a higher status. Totally missing the point. The picture in the Bible is that all work is sacred. There's not sacred and secular work. All work cares for everyone around you. Cares for different parts of their lives. So a pastor might care more for the spiritual lives of the people that she is taking care of or he's taking care of. But what about being able to eat food? You have physical bodies. You know, pastors can have roles in different parts of your lives, but all I'm saying is every piece of work that's done cares for someone around them. So at the present, you find yourself stuck in a job you do not like. Even if you're ultimately going to leave that job and move on someday, even so, all work becomes a way to love and serve the people around you. It has meaning. It contributes. Even if it's just part of keeping the economy going, I like this quote. There may be no better way to love your neighbor, whether you're writing parking tickets, software, or books, than simply doing your work. And in this way, work, all work is more than just punching a clock, more than paying the bills, more than a necessary means to a better end. It connects to provision and care of all. It becomes a prayer. Intercession for the people around you, a hope, and an action towards loving your neighbor. And if that's true, I think there's another significant implication that this perspective demands, or is actually more than demand, it's hopeful. And the implication is this, do a good job. Do a good job. If work is one of your forms of prayer, if all work is sacred, if all work loves the people around you, if God is working through you to provide for others, if work is something we all need to be fulfilled, if God himself delights in work, then let's work hard. Let's do our best at whatever is before us. And let's honor every worker and the work that they do. You need them, they need you, and there's no difference. You know, I think there's a simple, just a really simple but powerful 
application, something you can do from this sermon. And that's this. This week, if you notice somebody doing a good job at anything, say thank you. And we do this naturally at football games and at concerts, right? I'm going to see Bruce Springsteen this week. I'll probably tell him he's doing a really good job (laughs) at some point, right? But often we overlook what people do at the grocery store, at the laundromat, at work, with our parents and caregivers. And if all this is true, the someone who takes pride in their work, who works hard, who does a good job, is serving and providing for you. So say thank you. And in doing so, you not only affirm them as someone who's reflecting the image of God, but you're actually praising God himself who created him. Good job, God. I see you right there. Now you might be thinking, Brad, okay, this is all good. All right, I get it. Work's a good thing. I should love it. Okay. Work doesn't feel to me like a blessing. And can't we work to the point where work is actually destructive in our lives? And I think the answer to both questions is yes. And next week we'll look at why that's true. All right, let's pray. God, I pray as we start this series that we can have a moment to reflect on the fact that no matter what our experience with work has been, and some of us have been mistreated at work, some of us have been disappointed in our work, some of us are like where Niggle was in that opening story, where we feel like failures, um, and thinking of work as a good thing is difficult. So I pray today, no matter where we are, that the idea and the perspective we see in the Bible of work being a blessing to us, even if we haven't experienced that very much yet, I pray it would begin to just open us up for some possibilities. And Father, the image we see in the Bible of faith is just all we need is a mustard seed, and that can really take root and change things in our lives. And so I pray that as we reflect today on the blessing of work, That would be just like that, a seed, a mustard seed planted in our hearts. Just a little gleam of hope for those who need it, in Jesus' name. And I also pray that for anyone who really wants to work, but for whatever reason is finding themselves sidelined. Amen. All right, if you're on the worship team, please come forward. Um, Before we head into a time of singing,